0: The shadow of your smile Will color all my dreams
1: HPPodcraft.com
0: We are back at the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And
2: I'm Chris Lankey, And we're at HPPodcraft.com.
0: <laughs> this is our fourth and final episode on The Shadow Out of Time by... H.P. Lovecraft. We're joined again by reader Andrew Lehman as well as uh, Reber Clark on the music box. Here's the story so far. We've uh, learned about the great race of Yith. They're an extraterrestrial species that can travel through space and time by switching bodies with hosts. We don't know what they originally looked like, but on Earth they have cone-shaped bodies and they lived in the distant past. They switch bodies with hosts in order to study history in the future, and they have this library city where they recorded everything. At some point, another monstrous race that is dormant beneath This city will rise up to kill them the flying polyps right yep the Ithians will have already jaunted forward to the future before that can happen thus escaping their fate
2: into some cockroach bodies
0: and the cockroach bodies take take
2: over after the humans are long
0: extinct right now the narrative of the shadow out of time has been told by Nathaniel Wingate Peasley who for seven years was a host of one of these Ithians and while he was possessed his body explored the world while his mind was in the past and now he remembers that experience while he was a Yithian in his dreams, which he thinks is a psychological malady, and he writes about it in psychological journals. Now this Australian miner discovers some remnants in the desert that Wingate has described in his dreams in these journals. When this connection is made, a Miskatonic University forms an expedition, check on the veracity of this stuff. Wingate and his son and Dyer from the Mountains of Madness and lots of other scientists head out there and start excavating to find out if the stuff Wingate is dreaming is actually real. So this point in the story, we're at the expedition. Wingate is feeling this pull ...at night and sleepwalking through the desert to this particular point. Uh, we're at Chapter 6, which Wingate calls the crucial and most difficult part of my narrative. So that's where we are.
2: It's on July 17th that he goes out to the northeast. Now, the, these uh, ruins, these, these big blocks that they keep finding that have these uh-huh. engravings on, on them... ...keep moving off in that direction, and he's been feeling this pull. to there. And he's at night, he can't sleep, and he goes walking. There's this Australian miner guy uh, named Tupper, and he sees our man Peasley go off to the northeast and then he comes back five hours later okay now this whole night there's no wind nothing was going on it's a very calm night then at 3.30 a violent wind kicks up and it pulls some of the tents over and I mean it's just Intense, super intense, yeah. and it even freaks some of the Aussies out because they know the Aboriginal myths,
0: and that—that's why windgate has gone. That that wind kicks.
2: Up. Yeah, he's gone. He's he's out and about
0: on his nocturnal rambling.
2: The Aboriginal myth says that the great wind comes from those stones or from the caves by those stones and the, the ruins, and oh, you know, this reminds me. Um, last week we talked about Budai yep. being the the great man who uh, sleeps with his head in his arms, and then one day he's gonna wake up and eat the world. And mm-hmm. I was like, I don't have ever heard of that before, and I couldn't find any reference to it. On the forums, there was some talk about it, and I know Old Book had a couple theories himself, but I got an email from one of our listeners, Claire, who is also known as Star One Blaze, and she mm-hmm. me- she mentioned that there was this book called Queensland, Australia by John Duane Lang, and that was written in 1861. And there's a quote in here from that book, there are certain traditions among the Aborigines." that appeared to me to have somewhat Asiatic character and an aspect of Budai, or, as it's pronounced by the Aborigines towards the mountains of the Moreland Bay Districts, Budja, quasi-Buddha. They regard it as a common ancestor of the race and describe it as an old man of great stature who has been lying asleep for ages with his head leaning in one arm, and the arm buried deep in the sand. A long time ago, Budai awoke, got up, and the whole country was overflowed with water, and when he awakes and gets up again, he will devour all the black men. Now, this tradition is so remarkably similar to the following quoted by blah, 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 blah. This was being brought up because it's talking about flood myths. Yeah. Yeah, that's what this is in reference to because uh, it it ties into Dagon even in this story because in the Dagon myth, not Lovecraft's Dagon myth, but the actual Dagon uh, the
0: Old Testament. The Dagon. Old Testament
2: Dagon has uh, tied in with the flood mist as well. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, I recommend going to the forums and, and reading uh, on the entry of this podcast because there's lots of talk about this. But that seems like that could possibly be. Yeah.
0: With the Buddha reference. The Buddha.
2: And you know what? There is a book by, not that we don't push jo- Joshi enough, but there is a <laughs> a book by him called Lovecraft's Library, which I didn't even know existed uh, mm-hmm. Until I was trying to find, I go, I wonder if Lovecraft read this book and then I did a search for Lovecraft's library and it popped up and there's a whole book about what books Lovecraft read. Oh wow. And uh, I, I want it. <laughs> so I'm gonna try <laughs> I'm gonna try and snag that book to find out. Um, because you know in his letters he talks about what he reads a lot. So we've sure. got a pretty good idea of what Lovecraft has read and what books he owned and what things he referenced. So it's very possible that he might have read this Queen, Queensland's Australia book. Because uh, it was written in 1861, so oh, okay. obviously before then. So, well,
0: well, thanks, Claire, for for calling out those details to us. Yep, it was great. We asked about it, and we received it. Oh,
2: oh, oh, Chad, Chad! Remember last week when I called out Joshi about making a mistake in uh, the HP Lovecraft Encyclopedia?
0: Do I? I've had my house <laughs> boarded up all week. I don't. <laughs> I got some. Yeah, he tagged my house. What? Yeah, Joshi. Middle of the night. Some spray paint. He was like, first your friend, then you're next. (laughs) Oh, no. You better say if you're right or not. I can
2: document it here. I got got proof. Uh, It was the evil clergyman. That's the one I was reading. Okay. Now, the part he says here when he's describing what happens in the story, he says, uh, and I quote, after they depart, the clergyman takes up a coil of rope, mounts a chair, and with a strange look of triumph, hangs himself. The narrator Mm. then lurches backwards down the stairwell. Okay. That's not what happens. What happens is the guy gets ready to hang himself, and then mm-hmm. he stops. And I'll, I'll give you the quote here. Hold on. He attached one another rope to a hook in a great exposed central beam of the black oak and began to make a noose on the other end. Realizing he was about to hang himself, I started forward to dissuade him or save him. He saw me, ceased his preparations, looking at me with a triumph which puzzled and disturbed me. He slowly stepped down from the chair and began gliding towards mm-hmm. me with a positively wolfish grin on his dark, thin-lipped face. Okay. And then... I'm going to just not read the whole thing here, but then he pulls out the little matchbox, if you recall, and it scares the guy, and then the evil clergyman falls down the stairs. He backs up down, down into the stairs. So, wrong. That's not what happened.
0: I don't know. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? <sighs> Joshi's probably right.
2: He's not right!
0: Look, man, I don't know if you know about this guy, but I, you know what I heard about him? One time, he put Chuck Liddell, the ultimate fighter, in a chokehold and held him there while he watched entire season one of Family Ties. <laughs> that's ST Joshi. <laughs> if he said that's what happened in the evil clergyman, that's what happened.
2: The whole reason I bring this up is because when we research things, I like to be as yeah. thorough as possible. And as much mm-hmm. as I even trust Joshi on these things, I like to double check. And Joshi, I know that eventually you'll come to England, you'll probably kick my ass, but that's a mistake. <laughs> that it's a mistake, it's a minor mistake. You've yeah. so many wonderful things that you've done mm-hmm. that have that are so full of non-mistakes that having one mistake is not a big deal.
0: Well, all right, yeah. Just for the record, I, I disagree with you, but cool. Let's let's get let us get back into the story. <laughs> that wind kicks up at 3:30 a.m. and then it, it eventually dies down. Now, just past five, Peasley comes staggering back into the camp, and he looks pretty worse for the wear. Right, yeah. he's hatless, tattered. He's got
2: scratches all over himself.
0: Doesn't have his flashlight. He tells them, "Oh, well, here's what happened. I went on my walk. I got kind of fatigued, so I lay down in the sand for a nap." As you do. And, uh, (laughs) I had really bad dreams out there. and, And when I woke up, the wind had, you know, blown my hat off, and I was upset about my hat. And, uh, That made me fall over a lot on the way home. And I mean, it's just a really ridiculous uh, explanation. Really
2: bad explanation, yeah.
0: That I don't think even anybody in the camp finds credible. In fact, he he goes on with this kind of nonsense where he's saying, and, you know, we probably shouldn't continue with the excavations in that part of the desert either, right? Doesn't he come up with some lame excuses?
2: Yeah, he says, uh, well, we don't want to offend the superstitious miners. Of course, (laughs) we don't want to do that. So we better stop. And uh, there yeah. might be a shortage of funds from Skatonic, so we, we better hurry up and wrap this thing up and just you know be on <laughs> right. our way.
0: Well, it doesn't work, you know. They they say whatever, you know. Take why, why don't you just lay down and get some rest? And they go ahead and they excavate in that area the next day. But uh, whatever it was that he had found out there, nothing remains in sight. The sand has mercifully covered up whatever it was that he find, found right. that he referenced in the opening passages of this whole story. Whatever it was, he yeah. found out there
2: from this windstorm. Uh,
0: from the windstorm, yeah. And so he decides. I got to get out of here. And he asks his son to, to take him away from the expedition. Wingate takes him to Perth. And then from there, he's able to catch a, a steamer for Liverpool. And, and not it, to Cleveland. And not, <laughs> to Liverpool. That, that kind of contextualizes the whole thing. He's on the steamer back home when he's saying, all right, this is what actually happened. Yeah. He's documenting it. There's a great line here where it says, something was fumbling and rattling at the latch of my recollection, while another unknown force sought to keep the portal barred. I yeah, love it. that sentence. That's good. Because he doesn't want to say what what actually went down. Feels, but. He
2: feels he, he needs to, though, because, yeah. again, we talked about this last week. I just can't imagine going through something like this and how right. he lost his wife. He lost some of his children. You know, He's had yeah. to rebuild his entire career from scratch. He's done all these things, and this is something that has has plagued him. And, of course, I can understand why he wants to exercise it, maybe by riding it, but it was going to help him out.
0: Yeah, and we know that he just kind of, He basically found proof of what he was dreaming about. I mean, we know that. At this point in the story, after all these chapters, he finally gets down to, here's what I found out in the desert, and here's what happened to me that night while I was gone for those five hours. Mm -hmm. He was out walking. He didn't really know how long or for how far or even in what direction, but Mm -hmm. he spies this heap of blocks. Now, when he looks at it, he sees these have curvilinear patterns that are closely related. They're not just scattered blocks. This is part of one vast decorative conception. Right. And he realizes that he has found the masonry that they've been finding everywhere in its old position. It's a little beaten up but it's in a very definite sense in a shape. And so he starts going crazy and digging at it and looking around and he feels this stream of cool air trickling upward from a, de- a depressed place near the center of it. Yeah. So there's something below there. Some existing structure.
2: Yeah. And he's it's familiar to him. All this stuff is becoming exactly. more and more familiar and he's like, wow, I, I'm remembering this. This isn't a dream. I know if I go here... I'm going to see this. And if I go there, I'm going to see that because I know this.
0: Right. So he starts like a mad person, you know, scrambling with his on his hands and knees through all of this masonry, trying to clear the space where that you know depression is, where that air is coming Mm -hmm. out. And soon a strong draft blasts out of there and he looks down and there's all this tumbled masonry kind of going down like a slope. Mm-hmm. Uh, into the earth. And he even, in this point of the narrative, says, You know, I know in, in retrospect, what a terrible idea for me to go down into the earth all by myself when nobody knows where I am. Yeah. It seems like the utter apex of insanity, but he feels compelled to do it because, as you say, he remembers this. So he doesn't even hesitate. He goes down into the earth, mm-hmm. down the scramble of all this. It's as if a, a ceiling or rooftop is caved in and it creates this kind of passageway down. Eventually, he gets to a, a level floor. It's strewn with all of the blocks.
2: Yeah, an old corridor. You can tell it's it's one of these corridors that he recognizes. And In fact, it reaches so high that
1: the beam of his flashlight doesn't reach the roof. Definitely and absolutely the millennially ancient, eon-hidden corridor in which I stood was the original of something I knew in sleep, as intimately as I knew my own house in Crane Street, Arkham. True, my dream showed the place in its undecayed prime but the identity was no less real on that account. I was wholly and horribly oriented. The particular structure I was in was known to me. Known, too, was its place in that terrible elder city of dreams. That I could visit unerringly any point in that structure or in that city which had escaped the changes and devastations of uncounted ages, I realized with hideous and instinctive certainty. What in God's name could all this mean? How had I come to know what I knew, and what awful reality could lie behind those antique tales of the beings who had dwelt in this labyrinth of primordial stone?
0: He can't stop himself remembering. He says, "Could I still find the house of the writing master and the tower where Sigaha, the captive mind from the star-headed vegetable carnivores of anna? you know, he he, yeah. he remembers all of this stuff like." The map of the place is playing out in his brain because he'd walked through it so many times
2: so many times because he was there for f- five
0: years i imagine it's got to be like when you visit a grade school decades after you've been there it
2: actually reminds me of going back to our hometown sure this is something that crossed my mind is when i go back and i don't remember things as well as i used to because i haven't lived in my hometown in close to 20 years now yeah and things change you know the Buildings get made, buildings get knocked down. There's the familiarity of it. Mostly it's the same, but there's that sort of feeling that the place that I came from is now no longer that place anymore. It's kind of a ghost. Now, that's not exactly what's being talked about here. That's not the revelation, but there's sort of that, that memory makes me think about
0: Yeah, but but in that, there's also, despite it, and it really, parts of it have changed a lot, but if I'm there, I'll find myself driving from one location to the other without even thinking, thinking about it. Even though I haven't lived, yeah, I haven't lived there for 20 years either. Yeah. But if it's somewhere that I used to go then, it's not a problem at all. And and that's the experience that he's having. And that gets us into chapter seven. Seven. So onward through the blackness of the abyss, he keeps going, plunging, staggering. His His pace at this point picks up because of this familiarity. He doesn't have to be as careful about where he's walking. Mm-hmm. But then he gets to this chasm. Mm-hmm. It's like an Indiana Jones moment. There's this break in the floor. You know, he really probably shouldn't be crossing it.
2: It's at an angle because the side he's on is a little higher than the other side. Yeah, which which later on it sort of factors in because when he's going one <laughs> way, it's not yeah. so it's not so hard to go from one to the other. But when you want to come back, it's going to be a bit of trouble. But he's not thinking about that.
0: Not at all. He gets to the narrowest point of the chasm as he can, and he, in this frantic moment he jumps across and he lands safely on the other side. Everything looks familiar. He gets toward he gets to this uh, subterranean house connecting highway, mm-hmm. right. No. And at some of these intersections, he's turning or he knows where he's going. In one of these cases, he could trace the sealed-up outlines of this archway that he's kind of trying to get
1: to. I shook violently and felt a curious surge of retarding weakness as I steered a hurried and reluctant course through the crypt of one of those great windowless ruined towers whose alien basalt masonry bespoke a whispered and horrible origin. This primal vault was round and fully 200 feet across with nothing carved upon the dark-hued stonework. The floor was here free from anything save dust and sand, and I could see the apertures leading upward and downward. There were no stairs or inclines. Indeed, my dreams had pictured those elder towers as wholly untouched by the fabulous great race. Those who had built them had not needed stairs or inclines. In the dreams, the downward aperture had been tightly sealed and nervously guarded. Now it lay open, black and yawning, and giving forth a current of cool, damp air. Of what limitless caverns of eternal night might brood below, I would not permit myself to think. This thing that's open, this is where the flying polyps were
2: imprisoned. But it's open. The flying polyps have gotten out. And there's no no Yithians around to guard it anymore.
0: Now, well, we knew that they were going to come out. Exactly. Because the
2: Great Race, that's the whole reason why they moved ahead to the future, is because they knew the flying polyps were going to eventually come out. And
0: they do. But the question is, are they still there? From where, at this point in the story, he, he he's close to the archival structure, which seems to form his goal. He kind of runs down there, and his hand is going crazy as he gets closer to this place. He's speeding along at this point. Yes. Toward the library that he wants to get to. Yeah. Basically, he gets into this library, and he's looking around, and it's all very familiar to him, and there's shelves with the metal cases that hold all of the documents in
2: them. Yeah, the, well, the books, they were, when he was in a Yithian body, he wrote in these big books
0: right they're these big metal cases and you open them up and they have this like cellulose exactly pages inside yep. of them yep. yep. but he pulls one down it's not his he pulls one down just kind of sort of at random mm-hmm. and the the there's an odd mechanism on it that you have to open up it's got like a hooked fastener yeah he just knows how to do it yeah he goes and he does it and he opens it up and it's just exactly as he remembered it's got the pages in there and he kind of even knows what level of the archives he's on this is the level that deals with non-terrestrial planets yeah, Gets a little horror movie here. His, bat, his flashlight starts to fail. He has to put in the extra battery that he mm-hmm. always carries with him.
2: Well, that was kind of creepy because, too, he said he kept turning on and off his flashlight to kind of preserve the battery power. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, when he was inside, the roof was caved in so he could still get moonlight in down at yes. the first part. So that when he only turned on his light periodically, I thought that was kind of a really scary bit. Because if you think about, mm-hmm. you know, you're walking around in dark, flick on the light, you know, what's going to be there? You walk around into the dark, flick on the light, was going to be Yeah, I thought that was really, <laughs> yeah, that's really right. good. It reminded me a little of a uh, case of Charles Dexter Ward a little bit, you know, like mm. when it goes down in the catacombs and everything
0: like that. Yeah. He's trying to get down to where he knows his writings are. Yeah. And as he's going, his hand is kind of twitching in a way like he wants to work that lock. Like his hand is figuring out what his tentacles would have done in the other body to right. work that lock. And it's kind of compulsively doing it. I thought that was such a strong image of him crazily walking through these catacombs and his hand is just twitching through this combination set of patterns it and when he approaches where he knows his book is going to be he does see that the dust is kind of unsettled well it, it looks like maybe a couple of months before something happened here because there's impressions lead off in two directions as if some something had gone somewhere and returned. Mm-hmm. and by by the prints, there's a heap of cases that are, have fallen over mm-hmm. so it's like something happened And that gets us into chapter eight.
1: That my strange sense of compulsion was deep and overwhelming is shown by its conquest of my fear. No rational motive could have drawn me on after that hideous suspicion of Prince and the creeping dream memories it excited. Yet my right hand, even as it shook with fright, still twitched rhythmically in its eagerness to turn a lock it hoped to find. Before I knew it, I was past the heap of lately fallen cases and running on tiptoe through aisles of utterly unbroken dust toward a point which I seemed to know morbidly, horribly well. My mind was asking itself questions whose origin and relevancy I was only beginning to guess. Would the shelf be reachable by a human body? Could my human hand master all the eon-remembered motions of the lock? Would the lock be undamaged and workable? And what would I do? What dare I do with what, as I now commence to realize, I both hoped and feared to find? Would it prove the awesome, brain-shattering truth of something past normal conception? Or show only that I was dreaming? I know the answer to
0: that. Yeah. (laughs) It's that great Lovecraft convention of uh, paragraphs that consist only of questions. Am I crazy? Is it possible that this is happening? Well, so he finds his book, right? Yep. Cut to the chase here. He finds yeah. the thing, you know. He pulls the thing from its container. He pulls
2: out his book. He opens it up, and he's there's a horrible realization. He's freaked out. He's upset, but he doesn't explain what it is that he saw in this book. Right. And he doesn't even say it's his book. We just know. Yeah. At this point, that this is it is his book. He climbs down. Now, He had to get up to get to it because when he was uh, a Yithian, he was much bigger. So he had to climb on the little knobby things that to pull open the the containers. So he climbed on those to get up to it and was able to get it out. And then he puts it in his bag, and he's going to just run. He's got evidence now to support what had happened to him.
0: So he starts hauling. Uh, at one point, he makes a mistake. He knocks over some, some rocks. He makes a, a big noise. Yeah. That din, you know, is sort of his undoing because it causes all this whistling and wind to suddenly start flowing through the chasms.
2: A shrill whistling sound like nothing else on Earth. Yeah,
0: and we know that these things, the wind is sort of their harbinger. You know, that's, yeah. that's what you feel before... The, the polyps, that, that, yeah.
2: But it made me think of it made me think of uh, Talika Lili.
0: Absolutely, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah, although within that, an actual giant mass of Shoggoth horribleness starts chasing them up through. Whereas here, it's it's just kind of some wind. Yeah,
2: <laughs> not quite as not quite as scary.
0: He's hauling, and then he gets back to that chasm that he had to leap over before. And as you say, he's on the uh, he's on the wrong side of it. Yeah. And the wind is is behind him. It's kicking up. My wavering torch
1: was growing feeble, but I could tell by some obscure memory when I neared the cleft. The chill blasts of wind and the nauseous whistling shrieks behind me were for the moment like a merciful opiate, dulling my imagination to the horror of the yawning gulf ahead. And then I became aware of the added blasts and whistling in front of me, tides of abomination surging up through the cleft itself from depths unimagined and unimaginable, now indeed the essence of pure nightmare was upon me sanity departed and ignoring everything except the animal impulse of flight i merely struggled and plunged upward over the incline's debris as if no gulf had existed then i saw the chasm's edge leaped frenziedly with every ounce of strength i possessed and was instantly engulfed in a pandemoniac vortex of loathsome sound and utter materially tangible blackness This is the end of my experience, so far as I can recall. Any further impressions belong wholly to the domain of phantasmagoric delirium. Dream, madness, and memory merge wildly together in a series of fantastic, fragmentary delusions which can have no relation to anything real. There was a hideous fall through incalculable leagues of viscous, sentient darkness and a babble of noises utterly alien to all that we know of the earth and its organic life. Dormant, rudimentary senses seem to start into vitality within me, telling of pits and voids, peopled by floating horrors and leading to sunless crags and oceans and teeming cities of windowless basalt towers upon which no light ever shone.
2: And this is a, a common thing that Lovecraft does as well, where the person doesn't remember exactly how
0: things went. At the moment of supreme horror, they lose consciousness and they're left with dim impressions of these horrible things. And when they're next found, they're stumbling yes. somewhere far away from the horror. Exactly. It's very common. <sighs> the demon wind dies down and the bloated fungoid moon sinks reddeningly in the west. Yeah. It's a great sentence. Yeah. And
2: it moves once uh, m- to the camp. And then that's kind of where everything, we don't already know the story at this point.
0: And he says, you know, even through all this, he doesn't know if that abyss and what it held were re- was real and if it is true then there is no hope for anybody
2: but he doesn't have the book the notes he lost them somewhere on when everything was going crazy he doesn't know what happened to it and he doesn't have his flashlight he doesn't have a lot of stuff and that was his bit of evidence and so he even can kind of still at this point tell himself you know maybe that whole thing was just a big
0: yeah maybe i'm just crazy
2: dream or hallucination some other thing you know it's not sure but there is the reveal of what it was that he saw in that book that made him so horrified that we all obviously
1: have already figured out. I have said that the awful truth behind my tortured years of dreaming hinges absolutely upon the actuality of what I thought I saw in those Cyclopean buried ruins. It has been hard for me, literally, to set down the crucial revelation, though no reader can have failed to guess it. Of course it lay in that book, within the metal case. The case which I pried out of its forgotten lair amidst the undisturbed dust of a million centuries. No eye had seen, no hand had touched that book since the advent of man to this planet. And yet when I flashed my torch upon it in that frightful megalithic abyss, I saw that the queerly pigmented letters on the brittle, eon-brown cellulose pages were not indeed any nameless hieroglyphs of Earth's youth. They were, instead, the letters of our familiar alphabet, spelling out the words of the English language in my own handwriting.
0: That's the end of the story. And that's the end of the story. All my dreams.
2: So, Chad, what do you think of it?
0: I really liked it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and as I've been ranking these things, I'd say it's among my favorites. Yeah. Um, I did like it better than At the Mountains of Madness. I think it's a more personal story. It gets a lot of the same ideas about prehistory across, but it does it in a really interesting, non-indulgent way. Mm-hmm. I would recommend it to people who aren't even familiar with Lovecraft, but maybe have a passing interest in science fiction. Whereas I wouldn't recommend "At the Mountains of Madness," but you know, I, I think he's got other stories that are that are better horror stories for sure.
2: Yeah, well, I I, I disagree with you. I like "Mountains of Madness" better. Hmm. Okay. No, this is I know th- this is more personal personal, and I think it's written more concisely. But the uh, just the adventure level of "At the Mountains of Madness" and the Shawgoth and the the elder mm-hmm. things and uh, maybe it's because i i love the thing you know like i came back from the yeah. other end of it you know i was into the stuff that this story inspired as opposed to the other right. way around i just for some reason really captured my imagination i was really into at the mountains of madness
0: and well no i mean i was in in this in that same way though i mean i love the idea of it and i love the ideas in it and i love the setting and, and all of those things but as a story it gets very ponderous you know and so it does
2: it's not perfect but i just yeah. there's something about it i can forgive its imperfections and this one i feel like there's so many things that are kind of lifted from that story that totally yeah that it that maybe it is a better version of that story but having being fr- familiar with at the mountains of madness first i think it's i like it better you know the story was inspired by a movie that lovecraft saw
0: uh, yeah, they showed it at, you know, unfortunately I wasn't able to go this year, but at the Lovecraft uh, Film Festival in Los Angeles this last year, they showed it.
2: Uh, Berkeley uh, Square was the name of the movie.
0: Berkeley Square, right. Yeah. I've never seen it. Have you?
2: I haven't. I haven't seen it. In fact, I, I, just, I just learned about it researching the story. And Lovecraft called mm-hmm. this movie, he said, it is the... Most weirdly perfect embodiment of my own moods and pseudo memories that I have ever seen for all my life. I have felt as if I might wake up out of this dream of an idiotic Victorian age and insane jazz age into the sane reality of 1760 or 1770 or 1780. And that's what the Mm -hmm. story was about as a guy from Modern times wakes up and he has a whole life in the 1700s. And things. So it's
0: kind of like that film. Uh, there's a film I really like where it's Hugh Jackman comes from the 1800s to the future to fall in love with Meg Ryan. Wolverine? No, it's <laughs> no Kate Leopold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh. Yeah. Oh, God. Berkeley no. Square is just like that.
2: Uh, no, it's not. It, okay. And for a number of reasons, but mostly because <laughs> Berkeley Square is about a guy from modern times who goes back to the past, not oh, a guy from the past who comes oh. to the future. And there's no Sorry. love story, as far as I know. I've never seen Berkeley Squares, But uh, freaking Kate Leopold was one of those movies where I remember seeing the trailer and thinking, <laughs> that seems like it's a joke.
0: Right. <laughs> like that's a
2: prank trailer when people make fun of movie trailers
0: would make. Right. Like Jack and Jill with, with Adam Sandler. Exactly. Uh, Hey, by the way, I think we were very disciplined and on message in this episode.
2: Yeah, we're doing, we did very well. One of the things I should finish up too by saying Mm -hmm. um, this was written between November 1934 and February 1935 and was first published in Astonishing
0: Stories in June of 1936. Yeah. Saw publication in in his lifetime. Yeah. Covered
2: that. Oh, you know, there's another thing that I wanted to bring up. This is also going on in the forums. People were talking about Nicotas. Now, I do another podcast with Paul McLean mm-hmm. called News from Nakotis, which That's is right. just kind of a Lovecraftian game and news and movies and things like that. It's a little kind of a news type thing. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's good. Nicotus, thank you very much. Nicotas is the name of supposedly this place where Peasley came to visit. That's the, the archive is called the supposedly right. now Lovecraft never calls it the and doesn't tie in the Nicotic manuscripts with it. That's something that was done after the fact. So uh, on the forums, uh, Chocho Garmond brought up, cause I couldn't figure out where it came from. He brought up that the is mentioned in the tale Zoth Omog by Lynn Carter. Oh, okay. So Lynn Carter, who wrote mythos stuff as well, uh, yeah. had that in and kind of made that connection that said, this was Nicodus. And so the Nicodic manuscripts were actually fragments of this library. okay, Which would kind of make sense because they have information from all time and space in them. So they would be pretty powerful documents, these neconic manuscripts, if they are from actually from Nakotis. But that was a jump that Lynn Carter made. It's nowhere in any of Lovecraft's stuff.
0: It was, it was great to read a Lovecraft story I hadn't read before, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It's been fun going over it over these episodes. By the time we got to this episode though, I was full of the story. <laughs> it's time to move on, you know?
2: One last thing that I did want to mention is there's a video on YouTube called Elder Sign. I'm sure you've seen this before, and we might have even talked about it on the show, mm-hmm. which is a, like a fake commercial for a medicine, like a medicine commercial, but it's for yeah. the Elder Sign. And It's funny. It's really good, and it's specifically about the flying polyps.
0: Oh, great, yeah. After doing
2: right. the research on the story, I went back and watched it, because somebody on our forums posted it, and goes, hey, watch this again, and then I watched it again and go, oh my god, this is, because they, he directly quotes from the story describing the flying polyps and stuff. And mm. It was. uh, It's good. It's go go. Give it another view. It's worth. Yeah, we'll put it
0: in the show notes. And I want to again thank Andrew and um and Reber for their contributions to these shows. Exactly. Now, uh, we I've got good news for you. We have reached our ransom. Yes! For the readings. It has happened. Thank you, everybody, for contributing. We really appreciate all the donations. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to hit the studio this week, and we're going to start recording. We're going to release one of them next week, and Mm -hmm. then we're going to release the other the week after that. Uh, So those are going to be in your ears soon, some full-length readings of the Temple and the Hound. Uh, After that, we'll be doing our... Live show.
2: Live show. That is correct, which has sold out. Yes. Also, for the live show, we're going to be doing the Challenge from Beyond, which was the round-robin story that Lovecraft did with Robert E. Howard and Long and a couple others. So I think that's going to be a really fun one for for the live show. Also, Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2 is coming out this month, and on April 7th, Chad and I will be in the Leeds Traveling Man doing signings, and we're going to give a little talk called Adapting Lovecraft, where we talk about adapting Lovecraft. If you can be at Leeds on the 7th at one o'clock, Chad and I will be there. We'll be doing some signings. I will also be doing some signings in York on the 14th of April, and I'll be down at the London Comic-Con on the 25th, and also in the Newcastle on 28th of April. Uh, we'll give you more details when we get closer to those dates.
0: Okay, so that means that the next time we're going to be yakking about this stuff is going to be when we are doing the live show. There'll be yep. some readings in between. So folks, uh, please tune in. We'll, we'll keep putting up details on our Facebook page and, and Twitter feed and on the, um, on the homepage that lets you know when you can tune in and all that kind of business, because we're yep. going to try and webcast it. So we'll have more details about that. In the meantime, please enjoy the readings and thank you for your contributions, and we'll be back then. This has been the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer.
2: I'm Chris Lackey. Good night. I'm
1: your, space invader, your, sun, like you. your dance floor like a
2: It's a nice guy you. those to
1: your number one Cryogenic hyperlane. Put me to sleep with your warp drive space round to heap Phasers suck to fun You're a captain jerk a limpy Destructo knots, my atomic
0: thrusters are on the spot. Missile command is my master plan if it's 2600. podcast.com.